0: On the Dallas Opera Network, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh,
1: let's get ready to rumble! Wherever, wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's Talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrid. All right, this week. Some of us could use something on the lighter side, like good old Gilbert and Sullivan. I patter about the best of GNS and fend off a little list of questions from my colleagues, including why GNS still matters to some of us, anyway. Plus, in the two-minute drill, tragedy in Vienna, imposters in Brooklyn, and racists on Facebook. Ashley Hardgrave, just uh, how was your week?
2: I- it was fine. Why? Why
1: do you ask? What oh happened? No, 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 particular reason, Matt. Anything? Anything new with you? No, nothing comes to mind. Just an okay. ordinary Monday. It's kind of, kind of quiet. Weston. Mm-hmm. Everything just kind of pretty peaceful.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just uh, I made a lasagna. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. Oh great!
0: Right. Delicious. Yeah, yeah, we always and, support lasagna.
1: And uh, Oliver, anything unusual or out of the ordinary? You know, on week?
4: Saturday at ten thirty, roughly Central Time. Um. I think I got a mosquito bite or something, just like.
0: (laughs) Oh, is that what that was? I was like.
2: You posted a lot of exclamation (laughs) points on Facebook, and I was like, I hope he's okay.
0: Those pesky mosquitoes, you know
1: how they are. (laughs) Ashley, what was happening in the world of sports for you this week?
2: Um, really cool story. I want to congratulate a gentleman named Christopher Nickich. He just became the first athlete with Down syndrome to complete an Ironman triathlon. Oh,
3: wow. That's
2: cool. It's so cool. The videos are like so inspirational and wonderful. He is now a Guinness World Record holder. Congratulations,
3: Christopher. You
1: go, Chris. That is swell. Uh, My daughter, having watched Bend It Like Beckham a couple weeks ago. A classic. uh, a classic yes, now at the tender age of eight is soccer crazy and soccer mad and all she wants to do is play soccer That's
4: i mean so not trying to um be misogynist or chauvinist anyway but do we really believe that kira knightley could ever be an athlete
3: she's she, isn't she very, very like, like a- soaking wet
4: isn't she like 90 pounds
3: <laughs>
2: it's true. i mean we have to give her credit for that was one of her like debuts to american yeah. audiences and then after that it was just a barrage of period pieces so uh, yeah, the fact i feel like that she, she yeah. was able to show up i on
0: think that's the, i think it's the only time she's ever even worn pants
1: in a movie <laughs> <laughs> true all right let's talk some opera Chalk talk on opera box score brady and gronkowski Kippen and Jordan, Venus and Serena, Torville and Dean, the little list of sports duos goes on and on. <laughs> One of my favorite pairs in opera are Gilbert and Sullivan. Quick show of hands here on the show: Who loves Gilbert and Sullivan? That was like half of a hand, Weston. Who <laughs> hates Gilbert and Sullivan? <laughs>
0: I mean, if those are the only two options.
1: Those are the only two options.
0: Okay, then I'm going to come yeah. down on the hate side. I'm, I'm Switzerland.
1: <laughs> I love Gilbert and Sullivan. I'm a, a dual English citizen with America. Drink. And, and <laughs> Drink. let me just say, um, we do like drinking in England. Every English person has some inalienable rights. Enduring endless rain standing in a queue and having absolutely no plan about Brexit with just seven weeks to go. But one of our other rights... <laughs> Perpetually seven weeks to go. ...is being introduced to Gilbert and Sullivan at a tender, tender age. And my father was responsible for that in our household. And we would go, at the earliest I can remember, the first trips to the theater, we're going to see the local Gilbert and Sullivan opera company produce these works. The long-term effect of GNS on the American musical theater with Cole Porter, mm. the Gershwins, Lawrence Hart, I would argue Stephen Sondheim, I think is inarguable. Why are GNS important now more than ever? If you think that they, they are. I think they're important because I think that their topsy-turvydom, their madness, their whimsy keeps us free spirited. It keeps us on our toes and it keeps us alive. Hist- I
3: will say they do kind of have like that sort of like um, uh, that They they feel like an origin of something really so so important a part of British culture that, you know, leaks over, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic as well. Uh, like I think of like comedy duos, like, you know, Fry and Laurie and, and people like that who are and Gilbert and Sullivan, are like kind of the first sort of meeting of those minds, uh, in my imagination in what we might broadly term modern history in the sort of English modern sense of the term, they really have this, this, uh, they had such a great working relationship, <laughs> but I think personally they did not get along as as well together.
0: There are no Britain and peers, is what you are saying.
4: Yeah, let me see if I can get our, like our resident historian, Matt. They're all about duty. Cummings uh, to back me up on this. It's
0: duty, duty. They're all about <laughs> duty. duty. So it's duty.
4: My understanding of English opera history is that. Handel was the opera composer like up until opera died in England and the Rest the audience began to reject the traditions of opera seria and then Oratorio was born essentially, but also what grew out of the death of Italian opera in Italy, in England was ballad opera, stuff like The Beggar's Opera. And I feel like mm. Gilbert and Sullivan sort of comes out of that tradition. But there was a dearth of opera in England up from the end of Handel to the beginning of GNS. And I think there was obviously operas that were composed, but we don't know about them. It's like there's like a big hole right in the center of English opera history. Matt?
0: Right. And I think a lot of what that has to do with is like many, most of the Handel operas, not all of them, uh, but most of them were in Italian. And so, when you have this, the English choral tradition, the English musical tradition, really took root as a choral tradition much more so than than English operas. Even a, like a ta- Handel's English operas have a have a lot more choral work in them than the Italian ones do, and would be like a really easy way place to see that. And so, Gilbert and Sullivan are kind of like. I think it's kind of like the difference between Italian and French Baroque music, where French Baroque is much more about dance, and it's much more about the language of French coming through than Italian opera allowed for, in that these Gilbert and Sullivan pieces are all about, like, the British, the very Britishness itself.
1: (laughs) And I think that that very Britishness can be really off-putting for many people, especially colonials like (laughs) y'all. And
3: this was, you know, this was at the height. Uh, and you say "colonials" in a in a in a nudge, nudge wink wink way, but this was at the height of the empire. You know, where this is, you know, uh, the Queen Victoria, the sun never whole sets. Very, very never setting on the British Empire. Right before it did set, of course. Um, and that's my uh, counter to you calling us colonials, George. Uh, but the, I, I think the. The, the real thing about Gilbert and Sullivan that I think makes them special is, I, in my mind, there have been many, many, many Gilberts throughout the, the ages. That kind of British humor really shows up when you go way, way back, Shakespeare, even before that. But I think what really put him over the top and why I put my half hand up is because I am a Sullivan stan if i am even if i'm not always a gilbert stan
1: is such I a thing think... possible can you can you be a, a fan of one without the other
3: this this is the question Westin, and what Westin, you,
4: let yeah. let the colonizer finish his point
3: Okay, okay, I'm. I'm. I apologize to His Majesty.
1: And we will get Carry to on. we will get to the colonial aspects of this repertoire in a minute. I wanna I wanna kick it off with a clip though, and this is actually from a U.S. production. This is the New York Shakespeare Festival production of Pirates of Penzance from the early '80s, uh, with Kevin Kline as the Pirate King. The clip you're gonna see is George Rose singing the Major General song. From a film version of that same Broadway production.
0: I'm the very model of a modern major general. I've information vegetable, animal, and mineral. I knew the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo, in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted to with matters mathematical. I understand equations both for simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. Lot of news. Oh, Got it. With many many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse.
1: I'm not sure if anybody was writing that type of patter up to that point in
4: opera. Um, I mean, there's, Rossini, there's a reason, uh, Mozart, <laughs> I mean, tons of Italian, there's, there's a composers.
3: reason though, there's a reason though that, that, that particular clip in the English speaking world is so, uh, enduring, you know, it's kind of perfect. Like the, 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 where the punchlines are located, the internal rhyme scheme, the alliteration, the just absolute, uh, pure Britishness of it. It does have, uh a quality that we, I think, are missing before and after Gilbert and Sullivan, to be honest, in any English speaking opera or operetta. And that's something that I think Gilbert and Sullivan has really fit a niche that no one has really come close to toppling throughout the entire history of Western music, essentially.
1: And I think it's because it's written in the English language that if you're a native English speaker in England, the US, Australia, you know, for example, that's why this musical form, this operetta really is this gateway drug into a much larger experience and a much larger repertoire. I will. Uh,
2: but really quickly, uh, Rossini and Mozart did not have a young Kevin Klein in their clip <laughs> with a half down to their navel shirt. Uh, my lanta. That was. <laughs> <laughs> that
4: I will just that say. That might have been
2: all you needed to convince She's got you there. In, in
4: Sullivan's w- defense and in Gilbert's defense. That, um, Italian is a much more rhythmic language. Um, whereas See. English, the words are so irregular. And so to be able to line up and the diphthong. Yeah. So to be able to line up yeah. rhythm like that point. with our vocabulary, um, is was a challenge. And it, it's, it's brilliant
0: how he does that. And I think in particular, the brilliance comes with how he's able to turn the phrase, uh, and get the rhyme where he needs it. By like inverting the structure of how you would normally say something like (laughs) about the square of the hypotenuse, for instance.
1: So part of the brilliance to me of Gilbert and Sullivan is the linguistic writing and it is the composition. But part of the attraction of GNS is, of course, its fan base. We talk a lot on this show about the fanaticism of sports fans being equivalent to the fanaticism of opera fans. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find a oeuvre, a repertoire, a pair of composers that causes such fanaticism as GNS. So many first timers get into making theater because they went to see GNS. So many amateur artists, and I don't use that as a pejorative term, so many amateur artists further their commitment to this craft over years using this repertoire.
0: And it's such an interesting paradox to me because I find that Gilbert and Sullivan has a pretty high cost of entry if you're really looking to dig into them. Maybe not to get into the mm-hmm. door, but definitely to get out of the lobby and like into the elevator up to see the observation <laughs> deck. Cause every uh, single yeah, line, went, every yeah. single, jo- every single joke is a reference to something that happened 150 years ago and that is very particular to a society that we don't actually know very much about in modern life these days.
4: But I'll, I will add that it's very tuneful, and a show like Pirates of Penzance is just as catchy as, like, Deflator Mouse. And so I think a lot of people of a certain generation, I don't know if it's happening anymore, but back in my day, um, would... Come to opera through GNS,
3: oh, Oliver. The 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 vibe I got from you, as you said, back in my day. I wish I had a monocle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one, once mind. again, to all of our our podcast only listeners, please go to the Dallas Opera Network and yes. seek out this Where's show so, ass, so you can God. see Oliver in his top hat. <laughs> I love that you just also happen to have a top hat lying around. I respect that. It's, I respect yeah,
2: major major props. I will say the one what place am that I, a farmer. <laughs> what is this, junior high? Uh, no, I mean, the one place that I am seeing GNS with frequency, kind of in a non opera, non MT context, commercials. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've noticed, mm-hmm. but in the last like three to five years, there have been no less than probably four or five different like national run commercials that use the <laughs> very model of a modern major general. First of all, props to their jingle writers because that is a lost art and they're nailing it with this GNS (laughs) compilation. But that's, I mean, when I think about where I've actually heard GNS with frequency lately commercials
0: and Aaron Sorkin TV shows.
2: Oh, also, yes. (laughs)
1: That's true. There's a certain brilliance when big opera houses program GNS. First of all, I think it legitimizes their compositions and their work, right? This is something that you expect to be done Fair. in on university campuses, in small towns with sort of quirky expats like myself. But when the Lyric Opera of Chicago did Pirates in the early 2000s, and you're getting that score with a full orchestra, like, it's really... Thrilling to have Opera Australia. Arthur, Su-
3: Arthur Sullivan is was a really good composer. He had a he had a career outside of just these little silly operettas. You Sullivan uh, stan, you. <laughs> that's that's me. I'm. It, it's not Gilbert and Sullivan. It's Gilbert or Sullivan. That's what I say.
1: Now, look, it's not all sweetness and light. And I'm going to be the first one to say that parts of Gilbert and Sullivan are problematic. Specifically, I want to talk (laughs) about their opera, The Mikado, which was in their time, by far and away, the most uh, performed piece of theirs. Let's start by looking at a clip of uh English National Opera's production of the Mikado. So this clip is from 2016. The production is a production from the 80s directed by the legend Jonathan Miller. In this clip, Richard Stewart reprises the role uh, first played in this production by Eric Idle of Monty Python fame and adapts Coco's speech from the Mikado about his little list.
4: As someday it may happen that a victim must be found, I've got a little list, I've got a little list
0: Of society offenders who might well be underground And who never would be missed, they never would be missed there are those
4: who hail the virtues of low alcoholic beer. And that BBC
0: presenter who'd a fracker on top here. That Republican contender who behaved just like a chump, building golf courses and skyscrapers that none can ever trump. And all those Russian athletes and the drug tests that they missed, the metabolicists. Those steroids
1: might be missed. Again, uh, that was Richard Stewart singing the role of Coco in a revival of Jonathan Miller's production from the early 80s at English National Opera. That clip from 2016, very topical, of course. That was before Brexit. That was before the November 2016 election and of course the song had been updated. That production I remember watching as a child on video cassette I believe. The entire production is set in a English seaside resort hotel. It has absolutely mm. nothing to do with Japan or the Japanese whatsoever. What? Well, that's the
3: thing. That's the thing about this about this opera in particular, and about all of Gilbert and Sullivan's operas as a whole. As we re- referenced before, this was all written to be very topical and very funny, at the height of the British Empire. And as we all know now, imperialism bad, very bad. Not great. So there are problems. But the thing about the Mikado, and I think that there's a tendency to kind of lump it in with your. Um, uh, Madam Butterfly. Madam's and, Butterfly. Madam's Butterfly in your Turin's dot. Yes. Um, yes, thank you. There it is. Where, <laughs> where you just kind of see a, a white person in yellow face, just pretending to that this is all a, uh, East Asia, and you're and you're just kind of ignoring. Just have to like ignore that, which is always awkward. Um, but I I think that there were because it was in part criticizing uh, British culture. There is actually something to be mined from the Mikado and other pieces that actually have a bit of a critique of imperialism in the time period, which doesn't necessarily come across in some cases as well as it could be. But I think it's interesting historically to see how imperialism was uh, satirized in during the height of it in this country for example the opening chorus uh, if you want to know who we are we are gentlemen of japan on a many of vase and jar on many a screen and fan and that was a, they said those lines because england did not know anything about yeah. japan all they knew were their products it was fashionable they have they have very s- silly racist sounding names but they're meant to sound racist and silly if that makes sense um, and now that isn't necessarily a condoning of those things because I think there are, in order to put on something like that, you have to do a pretty radical revision of the opera. You can't... Well, you uh, do. Uh, and
1: that's what Jonathan Miller yeah, achieved exactly. in that production. Paci- um, Pacific Opera Project on the West Coast did a version of Mikado and all the characters were, I believe, from video games or possibly uh, well-known anime stories. But that is my that is, <laughs> team. that it. is my question to you, which is like... Can the Mikado be performed uh, in, you know, quote, a a quote historical? I'm going to get out the, the, um, marker, dry erase marker. (laughs) Because that means, that means I mean business when I pull this out. Can this opera be performed in a quote historical way at, at this point in time?
3: I don't think so. I'm well, number one, yeah. number one, because of all the reasons we said, but number two, one thing that a lot of people don't know about this opera is that even in historical productions that you hear recordings of, you know, even as far back as the 50s and 60s, um, there is a line spoken by Mikado himself uh, in which he drops the N word. Uh, and that is not a very. Uh, not great. not not great, and it wasn't satirizing it in the way that perhaps the Gentleman of Japan monologue is doing. That line is almost always changed uh, in, in in newer productions. Uh, almost, even...
1: almost always changed, or so like something. Well, I, I would hope it. always. I, I, I don't I, get I that. Hope. Look, here's the here's, here's the thing. You 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 cannot do this opera pretending that it's set in Japan. You can't.
3: Absolutely no, not.
1: No. that's no. We're we're thankfully. Uh, I would hope that we are all you know. Past that, you know, for the same reasons that you cannot do, in my opinion, you cannot do, you know, turned out or butterfly with a non-Asian cast within that framework. What you Absolutely. have to do, if you want to do Mikado, is you have to do what Jonathan Miller did and take it so far out of its original context, uh, which is to really try and, and get to the heart of what Gilbert and Sullivan were doing by satirizing their own people. Even then the appropriation of these so-called Eastern tonalities, which we hear in the works of Puccini, even then, those still have to be reckoned with in a piece like the Mikado.
3: I don't know the, Absolutely. the
4: piece well enough to be able to suggest something dramaturgically here, but I do, from what Weston said, I think he's right, but and we can maybe use that understanding to create a new version where we are the audience watching 19th century British people try to understand Japanese culture, try to represent Japanese culture. So get like really meta with it, you know? Um, yeah. But that'd be so a hard or, thing to pull off.
2: <laughs> or another one is the one concept that you keep is the sort of imperialistic concept, strip out the text that has to do with any specific culture or region of the country and make it a haves versus have nots uh, and really just mm. make it kind of an, you know, a little more of an eat the rich tone as opposed to the celebration <laughs> of that. And, and as someone who I, I actually produced, um, you're going to have to take a drink like you do for George. Um, I produced a <laughs> production of the Mikado Goodness, going, <laughs> on, <laughs> going on uh, 15 years ago. God, that, it, it was. It was 15 years ago uh, with much of Also the known as When America Was Great. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh it just burns all of it um but yeah and it was largely done with all of the cultural contexts in place uh including uh non-asian singers in roles that are usually or at least are written as as asian with traditional costume and garb and cultural specialists brought in for mannerisms but as the producer i was like i don't feel i don't even 15 years ago i was like i don't like this i bet i you know i'm I'm not in a position where I can actually say no. I was just getting the production off the ground. Um, but yeah, I've, and I've thought for years about, you know, some of these things that we've done, like the Carmen that was done a couple of years ago, where they sort of changed the ending to make it a bit more feminist. I think there right. are a lot of ways in which you can make slightly bigger than minor changes to the storyline and the text of the Mikado, maybe even simplifying some of those chords that are a little too pentatonic. Uh and, and, and- yeah, please. And go the on. great
3: thing about Gilbert and Sullivan is, is that they're so light and so fun. Yeah, you're. There's no sense that you're really mess. Like I feel like whenever we talk about like changing the ending of like a a great Mozart opera or something like this, people, people are like, "Oh, it's perfect as it is. Don't can't change it." Uh, Gilbert and Sullivan was always just just the 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 pure living theater of Gilbert and Sullivan is such that. It was always changed. I doubt there have been two versions of a Gilbert and Sullivan opera across the entire history that have been used the exact same text. Yeah, and and but, I think it's great that we can uh, reuse and change things to update them and make them relevant. So whether that can happen with the Mikado or not, who knows?
0: <laughs> so on the other hand, though, and I'm not—I mean, not endorsing this point of view necessarily—but like this is a very easy conversation to have with the five of us who are generally on the same page. But there are, are a slew of Gilbert and Sullivan superstans who would mm. say, if Dexterous. you're changing the words, then you're not doing Gilbert and Sullivan's *The Mikado*. Yeah,
1: well, they're... so
0: what? Do you, like, what? What would be said? Like, what would we say next? Uh, the, I don't what... want to get sued. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> it's out. It's out of. It's out of uh, copyright. I mean, they're they're wrong. You know, this is look. You know, art forms. <laughs> the older they get, the more susceptible as they should be to change to being dramaturgically adapted and played with to to be kept alive and that would be that would be my argument to the gns purists this last clip is from scottish opera's production of the gondoliers which as far as i can tell from the interwebs never happened because of the pandemic in its place they released a Video of the finale of the opera featuring all of the artists, and I think it really captures the whimsy of the piece The Gondoliers and GNS as a whole. That just captures the spirit and the ethos of GNS. I mean, yes, people that drink, I get that. But then there's a guy with a cat. I love the cat. I love the cat. And why not? (laughs) Team, and to our viewers and our listeners, if I was going to leave you with three pieces of GNS homework, first of all, go deep into the repertoire. After you've seen Pirates or Pinnifer, get into Utopia Limited Get into Rettigore and Yeoman of the Guard, and do not miss the opportunity to see a production at whatever level, at whatever standard, where you are. Second of all— And
3: once you've seen one uh, show, listen to the Anna Russell How to Write Your Own Gilbert and Sullivan clip. It's a classic.
1: (laughs) Fabulous. Second of all, you must watch— The Mike Lee film Topsy-Turvy, which is about Gilbert and Sullivan. I cannot wait until my children are old enough to watch it. Don't worry, I've already started to brainwash them on the magic of Gilbert (laughs) and Sullivan. The movie's PG-13, a little bit old for them at this point, but it just captures the hatred that those two men had for each other and the brilliance of their work. Last but not least, we've talked about the inaccessibility of the language. Matt, they're all about duty. Cummings had the problem with that. I recommend to you a brilliant series of books called The Gilbert and Sullivan Lexicon, written by uh, the, uh, he's dead now, but uh, Professor Harry Benford, who was a professor of naval architecture at the University of Michigan, family friend of ours, and he wrote these books, which glossed virtually every single term in the Gilbert and Sullivan Cannon. So you could do a lot worse than give that to somebody as a Hanukkah present.
0: This just in, the two-minute drill. All
1: right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week.
4: Four people were shot dead and 22 people were injured by a heavily armed attacker across six locations in central Vienna last Monday. When the security of the Vienna State Opera told its staff that shots had been fired in the city center and that people were not allowed to leave the building, the company decided to not stop the performance. Quote, it was our last performance before the Corona lockdown, a spokesman for the Opera House told CNN. The director went on stage and told the audience what had happened and that security forces would not allow people to leave the Opera House.
1: German cultural minister Monika Gruters has announced a new line of financial aid for independent artists, allowing them to apply for grants of up to 5,000 euro. Currently, Germany estimates that this sector of the workforce comprises some 1.5 million freelance artists who contribute over 100 million euro to the country's GDP.
2: In a new- item that would normally qualify as worst of the week, someone impersonating the Opera Company of Brooklyn pressured an artist to send along specific body measurements to accommodate for costume fitting and eventually asked for photos of the artist with minimal clothing to be able to see specific dimensions. The artist has filed a complaint with the police but was told that the actions of the individual were not a crime and that the department would not investigate further.
0: Friend of the show, Anthony Roth Costanzo, will host Long Beach Opera's 2020 Songbook on November 15th, featuring a whopping 20 newly commissioned premieres. The concert includes music on current topics such as the silence brought on by the pandemic, what breathing means to the sick, missing indigenous women and girls, and a 2020 Brigham Young University decision to rescind a decree allowing same-sex relationships. Houston
3: Grand Opera has announced the cancellation of its remaining 2020-2021 mainstage operas, replacing in-person performances with an extended digital season. The company plans to resume live performances in fall of 2021.
1: The Atlanta Opera has announced a new series of safety measures to protect audiences as the company launches its 2020 season. Patrons who purchase tickets will have to pass a health screening to redeem their tickets before attending a performance said Ashley Meraki in the company's chief marketing and audience development chief. When we returned to performances post pandemic, we knew that a health screening was gonna be a new normal part of the experience.
2: Labor unions say arts organizations are choosing, using the pandemic to cut pay. Companies facing losses say they have no choice, since unlike natural disasters or economic recessions, whose recoveries start immediately, the pandemic has no predictable timeline, complicating the already tricky business of contract negotiations. The uncertainty is pushing performing arts executives to ask unions to renegotiate the terms of existing contracts and accept significant cuts to new ones that will outlive the pandemic by many years. "Quote." It's a question of survival. We all have to collectively roll up our sleeves and say we're in it together, and it requires sacrifice on all sides." End quote, said Peter Gelb, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera.
4: Following a maelstrom of activity over the weekend, earlier today, new administrators were announced for one of the internet's largest communities for classical singers. In a subgroup of Facebook's 13,000 plus member Forum for Classical Singers, racist Transphobic and fatphobic images and comments were used in what appears to refer to James Dargan, Talia Moore-Shearer, Eli, and VL, who were designated to be moderators for the online forum. Mr. Dargan, Ms. Moore-Shearer, and others are now part of a panel of administrators for the forum, which had originally been run by a single person, a person who was aware of and participated in the affronting subgroup. We can't have nice things.
3: Voters in Fort Worth, Texas, were able to pass the time in long lines on election day with the help of Fort Worth Opera Go. The company rolled a flatbed trailer on a pickup truck to polling sites for pop-up performances. Quote, It got me thinking, when will we have a large mass of people? (laughs) Election day, let's go! Said friend of the show and Fort Worth Opera General Director, Afton Battle.
1: Exit stage right. Metropolitan opera violinist and composer Pat Moore Lewis has died. In addition to his performances as a soloist and chamber musician in the U.S. and Europe, Lewis was known for his solo recital album From the Soul, released in 1997.
0: So Hungarian conductor George Fischer has died at the age of 85. His international career included a principal conductorship at Opera Cologne, and he recorded with such operatic luminaries as Edita Gruberova, József Vindberg, Kira Takanova, Teresa Verganza and Cetilia Bartoli.
4: And on this day, November 9th, it's a big day for opera history. Here is our limited list. In 1734, Handel started his first season at Covent Garden with Il Pastor Fido. In 1771, it was the first performance of Andre Gretry's Zemier et Azor in Fontainebleau. In 1873, La Jolie Parfumeuse by Offenbach premiered. In 1885, Italian tenor Aureliano Pertile was born in Montagnana. In 1900, it was the first performance of Zdenek Vibic's Pod Arcuna in Prague. In 1903, the premiere of Babette, an operator by Victor Herbert. In 1921, it's it was the birth of Canadian soprano Pierrette Allery. In 1926, Hinemith's opera, Cardillac premiered in Dresden. In 1929, Piero Cappuccilli, the Italian-based baritone, was born. In 1957, it was the birth of Swiss contralto Yvonne Neff. In 1965, Sir Bryn Terfel was born in Wales. North Wales, I think. And in 1974, irate over an unfavorable review in the New York Times, tenor Michele Molese, stepped out of character at the New York City Opera and announced that the last high C has been dedicated to Harold C. Schoenberg, who had described the tenor's high C as pinched. He was fired the next day, but became an absolute legend.
1: And that's your two-minute drill.
4: Piero Cappuccilli, one of those bass baritones that if you, or a baritone, I would say, uh, that if you like are a collector of recordings like me, you have so much of him. And here he was in oh, 1967, was on everywhere. 1967 in concert performance of Pagliacci or just the aria. And man, what, I mean, legato, beautiful tone, just that stand the deliver poise, <laughs>
1: High notes de- like butter. That delivers, no pinching. you know. Yeah. No pinching.
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> I stand.
1: Oliver, when we were, um, you know, taping the show last week. Last week, the the Vieta story was just sort of breaking. Yeah, the details were just uh, coming taken. out
4: just as we were recording. Uh, I mean, there was already like on Facebook and whatnot, but we didn't really see any, you know. We didn't really know. Yeah. Yeah. So that is horrifying and I mean it's too soon to talk about it this way but just can you imagine the cinematic situation that is or even the operatic situation that is you're you go to the opera it's the last day of the opera because corona lockdown is going to restart you're watching an opera about people killing each other and outside people are killing each other um and then there's... And then,
2: by the way, you can't leave the theater.
4: Yeah, but there's also some poetry there. Very stressful. In that, you know, they decided to keep the performance going even though they knew this stuff was happening outside. And when the audience realized that they were going to be stuck, the management decided, well, let's give them some music. And they played the and String quartet. <laughs> I mean, not my first choice, but, you know, it's Vienna, so...
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what your fir- one's first choice would be, sort of in the middle of a terrorist attack in terms of music but i mean they got the talent that's for sure there, there's in something
3: the comforting about Haydn. I, I would say that we all love I, we all love papa Haydn yeah. here i think
1: we're I'm it feels more like
4: that. a brahms moment to me though you know <laughs>
1: something with a ashley, little more pathos yeah. ashley what is going on in brooklyn what what is this
2: Listen, I, okay, just a quick shout out to the fake opera company of Brooklyn. Like, if you want nudes, there are other ways to get them, and you are know, barking right? up the wrong soprano. First of all, how dare you? We're in a pandemic. Everybody's out of work. She probably thought about it. No, she didn't. But I mean, for a moment, if someone called me and was like, "I have a role for you," I would do just about anything they told me. So, first of all, how dare you? Second of all, gross. Uh third, I'm horrified, and nothing shocks me anymore. But this was, uh, first of all, I feel so bad for this, uh, this young singer who I am assuming is female, but I, I will not be married to that if it turns out it was it was a, a another uh, person on a different part of the gender spectrum. But. I, I feel so bad for this person and the emotions that they must've had through it. Um, and then they realized that this was maybe a bit suspect, but in the moment, like what a, what a roller coaster of emotions. And then to go to the police and have the police say that it's not really a crime. I don't fully agree. Um, but I also see that while the rest of the world is on fire, how they would maybe push this to the bottom of the list. But my heart goes out to this, this young singer that experienced this. And also, uh, Whatever that person's name was, what did they say? Barbara Edison or something like that was like the fake name that they used. That's what we'll say. Shame on you, Barbara Edison. That's gross. Don't do that.
3: <laughs> I mean, and, it, and it kudos to shame. them for for coming forward with the story. They contacted yeah. Opera Wire directly. Our friends at Opera Wire. Yeah, for real. And uh, and uh, so now uh, people will be on the lookout for something like this. In if they try that again, which, like you said, a weird way to go about uh, that. Specific thing. So.
0: I'm like,
2: I know a, a myriad of different companies you could go to, and for a small fee, get the same reward.
0: We're casting yeah. our new opera, Look at Fish. You
2: are fired. Just. You are fired, guys. <laughs> fired.
1: I just, I just don't get. It. I mean, to me, it, it's it's creepy beyond words. I, it feels so thought out, right? It feels just like so put together. And so very specific. I'm, I'm going to pull out the, sh- the um, dry erase marker again. <laughs> I'm going to hit the, the pop mic here. I'm so angry. There you go. I, don't, I don't get it. And I think it needs to stop. And I don't know who you think you are to like go to those sorts of lengths, but knock it off.
2: Well, that's what was so bizarre about it. This is my final point is that this person had done their homework. Like they called this singer and had extensive knowledge about this person's career trajectory and where they had been and where they would probably be hoping to be. So like, Mm. this is a long way to go for a a couple of photos.
1: Matt Cummings. There's basically no difference between Germany and the U S when it comes to union renegotiations is (laughs) what I would be saying.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, just everyone's favorite topic about arts organizations has come up all at once at the same time. Uh, And this is going to be the big takeaway from the pandemic is how these negotiations turn out because they are famously contentious, famously behind closed doors. So difficult to verify the details of about, and every both every side has a lot of leverage because we're all in a lot of economic pain. Uh, and the, I I am concerned that the, that the singers union and, and other art and the other unions are just not able to, to counteract counterbalance that kind of pain that these organizations are going to be in. And that the, mm-hmm. the, the downstream economics effects are just going to keep piling on and on the people at the bottom of the pile. The, the stagehands, the ushers, the singers, the directors, um, who have gotten no help compared to, like, in Germany, where you can just apply for grants.
1: And to- I just thought it was crazy that these artists are bringing in, like, 100 million euro into the country as GDP. Euros. Because, yeah, the arts are... No, it's not euros. <laughs> it's... it's, it's, it's- I think in the
4: US we could put an it, S on it.
1: It, it rhymes with, with Giro. Oh god. G- oh my god. <laughs> and jerky. <Giorgi. laughs>
0: but it's uh It's just a it, it, you know, uh, everyone is gonna keep hurting. There there's no easy way out of this.
1: Yeah. Uh West and Williams very excited about the election day truck.
3: Well, I mean, <laughs> George, you have to understand that between Tuesday and uh, Oliver's mosquito bite, uh, it was a very stressful <laughs> week. So seeing any fun, uh, yeah, that Oliver got bitten by mosquito. Uh, but up until that point, there was like no fun news at all, except for this. This little election day truck. Can you imagine you're getting in line for what might be the most consequential uh um a presidential election of our lifetimes and this truck pulls up next to you? What are they singing? You know, what is the what is the appropriate p- uh playlist for that moment when you're getting in the right mindset to go in and vote? Like is someone just was someone I'm there to <laughs>
1: Oh, the pirate shirt be filled or not.
2: I mean, I was going to say just, Eye of the Tiger, even though it's not opera, but...
3: <laughs> <laughs> but that that image just kind of sustained me for several days up until the mosquito bite, and everything felt a little better after that for some reason. Well, that's uh, Afton
4: Battle following through on... She's brand new over yeah, there. And, you yeah. know, she said...
2: Mm-hmm. She got there mm-hmm. in September.
4: And she was saying, you know, we're going to bring opera to the people, and, like, we're going to go in communities, and we're going to share, you know, so...
3: Yeah. Honestly, all jokes aside, I, uh, I think that, you know, especially during the time of COVID, this is what we need to be doing. We need to find these safe ways to get out there and just show not just the opera, not just the music, but that they're part of the community. They're We're part of what's going on. Uh, and we're not separate from you. We're participating. We're helping you. We're bringing you up. And um, we're on all working Eagle's together wings. for hopefully a better world. <laughs> on Eagle's on Wings. Eagle's
1: wings. <laughs> Oliver, Camacho, Oliver Camacho, you and I have been doing this show a long time together. Yeah. You know that I know nothing about Facebook. The Facebook forum, what's going on? What is? Well,
4: this, this forum actually predates Facebook. Um, this forum has yeah. been oh, alive wow. in some way or another for as long as I can remember. I think you used to have to pay to be to be a part of it. As long
2: as we've been on the internet, yeah. there's been some version of this forum. Uh,
4: but it moved to Facebook because it's free, and it now has over 13,000 members. And it's a great way, actually, to communicate to a lot of your colleagues and peers really quickly. And it can really unify and um, draw attention to issues like the Black Lives Matter movement, how it kind of came to opera. That was very useful to have this forum for it. But there's also a lot of nonsense on this forum and Such. a lot of people complaining about, you know, this singer or that or this internet personality or whatever. It's just like there's a lot of noise there. But sometimes it's just entertaining just to like be a spectator, especially when somebody comes in and doesn't know the what what that place is for and they get dragged, you know, for asking stupid questions and stuff like that. So it's entertaining. It can be mean. But this was mean. So there is one administrator of this forum, and I guess the people who we mentioned, James Dargan, Nathalia, oh, I should have put this in the notes. Uh Thalia uh Shearer Moore, is that her name? I'm sorry if I if I'm misspeaking. Thalia Moore Shearer, uh Eli and VL were appointed to be additional moderators for the forum, and they created a subgroup of users of... They
2: meaning other people. Other people. Some those, people used,
4: yeah. created a subgroup to complain about these new moderators. And I can't even say the name of the subgroup. It's disgusting. And in this subgroup were all sorts of members of the big forum, including the administrator, um, who apologized and has been replaced as the administrator. Now this administrator has been essentially pushed to the side and they're now moderating or now it's a panel of administrators and James Dargan, who had originally stepped down because of this racism. um, He has been appointed to be one of the co-administrators. So I guess it's a lose win situation. So
2: it's, uh it's so frustrating. I'm, you know, like Oliver, like Matt, you know, I'm, I'm a member of this forum, but again, you know, this started as kind of a smaller thing and then it exploded into this huge organization that has like, you know, again, 13,000, it's like 13.5, 13.8, something like that, thousand members. So you're right. There's a lot of noise to, you know, between you, me and, and the four walls of this internet, I had to turn off notifications because it was blowing up my Facebook all the time. And some of it was just mean, like, talking trash on singers that's perpetuating the culture that we all learned in school that like there are singers that are great and there are singers that are like you know there's there's heroes and foes whatever um so I feel very bad that I didn't know all of these horrific things were happening until you know I was super late to the party on this um the the subgroup that appeared has a lot of uh a lot of members that This isn't their first rodeo in terms of the cruelty uh, that was expressed. And speaking of that cruelty, it was absolutely horrific. And I am Mm -hmm.
0: And explicitly so.
2: Explicitly so. I I don't want to... Because I don't want to harm our listeners. I don't want to trigger anybody for people that would be as uh, or more offended as as I was when I saw it. I don't want to get into the details, but just take our word for it that it was gritty and it was horrific and it was inappropriate on every imaginable level. So my heart goes out to these moderators that were brought in to to really, and quite literally, diversify that organization and that group and make it a more welcoming, more inclusive space. And then to have this, you know, offshoot. And and it's like, you know, you don't, when you don't know people are talking uh, garbage about you, I'm trying to censor myself here and not curse. Uh, when you don't know people aren't talking people are talking garbage about you, it doesn't really affect you because you don't know. But then the second Mm. you know, that's one hurt. And then when you find out that there are people that knew about the garbage talking that should have said something to you, and you trusted that they would say something to you, and then you find out that they didn't say something to you, that's like an additional layer of hurt. Not to mention Mm. the racism, the fat phobia, the transphobia, just the the main human decency and the camaraderie that we're supposed to have as artists, like those are violations one and two for me. So I feel, I just thank you to James for speaking out about this. Thank you for publicly stepping down on behalf of the black women, uh, who, you know, need to be celebrated far more than they are. Uh, and I guess, like you said, kind of a happy, sad thing. My hope is that, well, this is a topic for another show, but I, I hope that we can get out of the culture of the uh, the, the smack talking of singers and, and techniques at the educational level, because that's where it starts. Uh, but right. that's that's a far more systemic change that needs to happen somewhere else a, on another show. I meant, but, to,
4: I meant to read James's statement. So when he resigned yes, on please. Sunday, he said, I hope that at some point this forum starts to value and protect black women how can they feel safe and supported in a forum that has such strong connections to a vicious space? I don't see how that's possible. And I cannot be part of a group that fails to protect my sisters. So that's what he said on Sunday when he had stepped down. And now they've reorganized and now he's been asked to be please be an administrator. So that's, that's a good thing. And you know, he, he, he's passionate about this. And he joined the forum for a reason. And now he's hopefully can do some good but i mean this is just like a microcosm of like our society in general it's like there are people who will go to this other space and watch and not call people out and by participating even in that way you're giving tacit support to those things
1: you
2: know complacency is complicity full stop
1: the pandemic has brought out the best and it's brought out the absolute worst of everybody i'm gonna be pulling out this dry erase marker a lot (laughs) in these last few weeks god knows
0: we need it let's
1: wrap (laughs) this show up
2: good call bad call on opera box score
1: thanks for hanging out with us wherever you are however you're listening don't forget of course to let us know what your favorite gns operetta is if you got one opera box score at gmail.com quick fantasy football update tobias Wright and i at a Stunning two and six, having lost the last four and heading into a battle. I believe it's next weekend against Lawrence Brownlee. Uh, my hope is that because he's uh, permitting cycles of my being at Opera Philadelphia, he's going to be so distracted that he's not going to know what hit him when Toby and I <laughs> take him down on the fantasy football gridiron. Oliver Camacho.
4: Um, Shout out to b- Good Call for... Um, Barbara Hannigan, who is just in general uh, uh, amazing, but uh, she recently was awarded uh, a Ruby award from Opera Canada, which comes, I believe with a cash prize. And she's just giving that prize right to young, young artist programs. I think one of the ones that she started herself, but um, she's quoted as saying like, anytime I win an award, I just put it towards something. So paying it forward and uh, being just an incredible person in general, thank you, Barbara Hannigan
1: matt cummings
0: my good call will also hopefully help you this week george because uh lawrence brownlee is going to be really uh distracted by the drop of his new album with michael spires amici rivali uh which is rossini opera scenes and if you know me you know that uh lawrence brownlee michael spires and rossini are all my opera crushes so very excited for that Mm -hmm.
1: weston williams i know your good call is arthur sullivan ashley hardgrave (laughs)
2: again, in this very uneventful week where tensions were not high and emotions were not running strong, um, I discovered on Monday, not too long after the show, uh, Stephanie Blythe is uh, is quite the ukulele player. And she decided to put uh, forth some dulcet tones uh, the night before the election. So if you go to her Facebook page uh, on November the 2nd, you will see a delightful video of the always delightful Stephanie Blythe. You
4: know what? I'm going to just do a little screen share so our audience can see it, just a little bit.
1: But it's called The Dancing Years. It was originally put on at the Theatre Royale in Drury Lane. This is I Can Give You the Starlight. I hope you enjoy it.
0: I can give you the starlight Love unchanging and true I can give you the ocean, deep and tender devotion. I can give you the mountains, pools of shimmering blue. Of me, music in spring, flowers for a king, all these I bring to you.
1: How fantastic in that clip, Stephanie Blythe talks about the Ivor Novello writing that song and having it sung in a musical at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane right around the corner the Doily Cart Opera Company. Oh, see, we tied film... it all together. Brings it's it so, all
3: back hmm. around. All back
1: around. Oh jeez, I'm a terribly, terribly, happy Englishman right now. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at normwaddell.com. dot lcom Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score, and a podcast version of our show is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score would be totally cool. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera in your best patter. We're back with an all-new show next week, Wednesday, November 18, 9 p.m. Central on the Dallas Opera Network, when Weston puts a misunderstood opera under further review. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more recounts. Join us.